This is the Cigar Snob Podcast. I'm Nick Jimenez. In the newest issue of Cigar Snob Magazine, you'll find a profile of Nat Sherman International VP Michael Herklotz. This year is his 20th in the cigar business, and so we figured that was as good a reason as any to introduce him to readers, and in this case, podcast listeners, in a more personal way than he's been covered in the past. So this episode of the podcast is my interview with Mike, which we recorded in his office at the Nat Sherman Townhouse in New York City. If you haven't already, pick up this latest issue of Cigar Snob, take a look at the profile, or visit us on cigarsnobmag.com. You should be able to find that story along with a Spotify playlist that Mike put together for your next cigar. Why we had him do a playlist should become obvious to you after listening to this podcast if it's not already. All right, so with that, here is my interview with Michael Herklotz. All right, so we're here at the townhouse in your office. Yes, sir. And one of the things that we've talked about before we uh, switched all the mics on and set up our little mini mobile studio. We're not going there, are we? On your coffee table. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, was was your your journey and some of the things that maybe people don't know, whether because they haven't been said uh, in on the record or they haven't been said in a long time. Uh, so that's kind of in a very cliche sort of way. Start at the beginning um, with your your music. So. Tell me about how you got into music. I don't know. I know that you were at Berkeley, but at, at what age did you realize, okay, this is something that I want to actually pursue in a serious way? I was always, so I grew up most of my childhood in northeast, the northeast corner of Connecticut. Um, very small town, and um, I have a twin sister. And from an early age, we were both pretty um, performance-driven. Um, my dad was a pediatrician and had a practice in our home so we um we used to basically entertain families when they'd come in waiting for their appointments and so we always sort of had this passion for performing and um so my sister also um, pursued a career in performing arts for me it was really music with drums first I sang a bit too but drums was really it um so I play I played from the time I was 10 starting in fifth grade um Pretty specifically drums, drum set, so I would not be what I would consider a true percussionist, but really just drums and drum set, and did that certainly through middle school, um, a lot more seriously in high school, um, and then I went to Berklee School of Music in Boston, and um, and that's obviously where I really pursued it aggressively. In high school, what did a lot more seriously look like for you? And before you answer, can I get a cigar, a cutter, and a lighter? <laughs> <laughs> cigar? Thank you. Lighter. Awesome. I didn't think you guys used cutters. No, I'll fingernail it. Oh, good. Um, what did more seriously look like? Um, <clears throat> just a, a more um, a higher level of discipline, I think. Um, especially um, not just from a, a level of practicing, but um, more formal education. Um, learning more about music theory in general and music history and not just drum set and performing learning how to play different styles. I started going to more clinics, um, studying with different folks. I, I did a year or two at UConn um, studying uh, more classical um, snare drum performance, for example. Um, so it was really just, it was, it was sort of formalizing the, 
the commitment to wanting to be a real drummer and not just um, I didn't just want to be a a guy playing rock who who played on the stage. I wanted to truly be able to read music, um, to sight read, to mark charts, to be able to just sit down and and play at a moment's notice. So that education really started in high school and then certainly was formalized to a much greater degree in college. So for people who maybe are not, as because when people hear Berkeley, a lot of people's heads might go elsewhere. Tell me about Berkeley and and what that experience is like for the person who to whom that may be totally alien. Yeah, and it's you know Berkeley's an incredible place, and it's it's changed a lot. I graduated in two thousand two. It's changed a lot since then. Um, but when I was there, um, it was a it was really a, a microcosm of the of the real world. Um, you know, you you certainly don't go to Berkeley College of Music for your general education focus, but certainly that that education was required if I if I wanted a a degree. You could also just do a, a diploma study, and that didn't require the um, all the sort of general ed stuff. But I did uh, a degree study, but it's serious and it's interesting. It's all the all the politics that that exists in the music industry in a real life setting exists there. So, you know, you can, you can work and practice and audition and do everything you think you're supposed to do to be recognized. Um, and then the opportunity just might not be available because there's someone else who had a connection, who, um, was known before they came in and, and would, would be basically recruited for a gig before you even had the opportunity to audition and demonstrate that you were as good or better or close um, and so, you know, that, I think that, that prepared me for a lifetime of, of, um, you know, auditioning and, and trying to demonstrate that I was good enough to be on a stage with a particular band. So when you were, <clears throat> sorry, when you were at Berkeley, where did you find that you sat in, in the field of, of people that you, cause I, I imagine that it's like if you're, I don't know, playing college sports or where you're sort of now at this elite level where a lot of it's you know a lot of people have been funneled in there because they are super talented uh it was a it was a major reality check being a big fish in a small pond from where i came from and it was a small town i mean everyone knew me everyone knew my family knew my grandfather i remember distinctly walking in for my very first day registering and when i said my name they asked me how to spell it and Herklotz is not an easy name, I suppose, but it was the first time I could ever recall actually having to spell my name because when I grew up, everyone knew how to spell it. Did we say where you grew up already? Uh, Northeast Connecticut, yeah, Danielson, Connecticut. Um, so you know, it was a it was a major it was a major awakening, and and um, you know, I I don't think I realized the degree to which connections and relationships really played a role um, in success. You know, I thought foolishly that it was. Everything was fair and made the best person win, and that's just not—it's not always the case. Right. So, in was it in college that you started to dip your toes in retail? Yeah. So I, I, I've worked. I always wanted to work. So I worked in a in a drugstore when I was sixteen. Then I worked in a uh, a donut shop uh, called the Baker's Dozen for my last two years in high school. I loved working, and so when I got to college, I had a work study. Um, right away, and um, and then at the my first few weeks, I had two roommates uh, in the dorms. One of them, um, 
a kid, Chris Brown, who's actually from Pittsburgh and uh, a cigar smoker, and maybe he'll listen to this. I see him at the trade show from time to time helping out Island Gym. But he, we would take a different walk through Boston every night. And one day we were walking down Boylston Street, and we passed by a cigar bar, which was Cigar Masters on Newbury Street. So you figure this is 1998. I, I was 18, um, and it was like a different world. And so Chris said, let's go get a cigar. And I said, you know, I don't smoke. Um, you know, this is completely not my world. And he just walked right in, so I followed him. And it was like walking through this, this warp zone into a completely different place and a different culture. And it was incredible. And um, so he asked me if I wanted to try a cigar. I tried his. He had an Ashton Classic Panatella. And he explained to me how to do it and that you don't inhale. And, and it was interesting. It was, a, it was a flavor I had never tasted. It was a medium I never felt. It was a culture I had never seen. Uh, but obviously I couldn't afford it. I was a broke college kid. Um, so I, I, got a, I got a job that summer. There was a kiosk in the Prudential Center Mall called The Humidor um, that sold premium cigars. Um, and I got a job there, and uh, shortly after I started, that cart was sold to our wholesaler, who basically showed up and said, I don't have time for this, you run it. And so I ran that all through college. So what was it that um, you, you mentioned that you stepped into this world and the culture? Let's dig a little deeper about what it was that you connected to in cigars and in the experience of uh not just selling them, but being around them and around that culture. Yeah, it's like looking back, I didn't. I obviously didn't know then what I know now from a manufacturing side. So I would, I was a passionate hobbyist, like probably everyone listening. Um, and, um, but you know, I had like for, for me, I, I I don't do well at just sort of dipping my toe in something. I tend to go all in, and that's like the curse of an artist. You find something that interests you, and and you're kind of not happy just being on the fringe, you, you want to like go all in. So I just, I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to have a better understanding of, of what one cigar was versus another cigar. And, and, um, and then obviously the, the culture of enjoying cigars, that was a time, although it wasn't that long ago where, while there were certainly smoking bans and smoking restrictions, it was not at the level we are today. So, you know, even in the last five years, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. But back then, you could, you know, there were there were certainly more non-smoking places than smoking places. But you knew the places where premium cigars were welcomed, and it just created this. People talk about that camaraderie all the time in our industry. But imagine as an 18-year-old kid, um, it was it was legally available for me to to enjoy the product and being exposed to, you know, very professional people who had careers who had um, income that allowed them to afford this hobby. It was just incredible. And then, frankly, it was, it was also a bit self-serving because, um, you know, there's a lot that go hand-in-hand hand between the cigar world, the jazz world. I was playing primarily jazz at that time. Um, and, and so it just, it, just made, it just made a lot of sense that it was still something I was passionate about. It still um, it required a, a degree of sophistication and how you enjoy the product not unlike jazz you know you can't just listen to jazz for the first time in a in like a small combo quartet format and understand how they're playing and what the solos mean and how the form follows the two so it takes a certain level of education and sophistication to to love jazz i think premium cigars are the same 
so okay, so that so you already you connected with it on a level that you'd already connected with other things. Um, talk about your path from there, and at what point do you start to go deeper in your career in with cigars? So I moved. I graduated in two thousand two, um, and I was I was really performing a lot and and making a decent living as a musician, but also working pretty much full-time in the cigar world, too. Um, and uh, so I moved to New York in 2002 uh, with music still as plan A and um, got a job at the Davidoff store on Madison Avenue. So David Kitchens, who ran that store, used to run a store in Boston while I was studying there, so we got to be friendly. He hired me at Madison Avenue. And, um, and you know, that's a, that was an amazing time, too. I mean, the early 2000s, the Wall Street hedge fund world was really emerging. People had a ton of money, and and uh, being on da- being at the Davidoff store, Madison Avenue was like the epicenter of where these people came to shop. So, I, for for me, it was just this idea that if I loved doing both of these things, that I just I would do my best to not say no to any opportunity. Um, so there were times when I would I would use vacation days to go on tour, or I would move performing schedules around to accommodate more of my work schedule within the cigar business and I just you know I I I I was basically pedaled to the metal in both industries probably through 2006 and then in 2006 Davidoff bought um a store in Columbus Circle which was on the west side and they moved me over uh and made me the GM of that store so that was that was really kind of an all-in gig but I still played quite a bit um then 2008, um, David moved on, and I took over both stores. So again, I went a little more all in um, when I took over both stores in 2008, but was still playing somewhat regular regularly. Um, 2011, when I decided to leave and accept the position with Nat Sherman. By then, I was married, and um, and you know I'm not very good at being a starving artist. So the 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 cigar thing was at that point was really sort of fulfilling um a lot of what a lot of the 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 passion and and creativity that um that I needed the interaction the collaboration the spontaneity the improvisation it all exists in retail and in the cigar world um and so I'd say by 11 12 music really slowed down um and sort of to the pace probably I'm at today which is a show or two a year that are meaningful shows with amazing uh, musicians and performers but probably a show or two a year at this point, and obviously I'm pretty all in on the cigar side. Yeah. So let's. I mean, we we talked about that you were playing through college and after. Talk about what you were playing for the person who's trying to kind of picture in their mind Mike on stage. Yeah. Uh, what what did that look Man, like I, over the course of that time? So you would normally see me behind a small drum set, dressed nicely, playing jazz in a jazz club. Um, I also played full time in a wedding band on Nantucket. So we did like every top 40 you can imagine every weekend, sometimes three or four weddings a weekend. It was absolute insanity. And then I'd be like in a tuxedo drinking vodka cranberry and and <laughs> playing Sweet Caroline, you know, night after night. Did which you have was, a, a favorite and a least favorite of those top 40 that you found yourself playing all the time? I think Sweet Caroline was both my favorite and least favorite. Um but I mean, all you know, it, it depended on the gig too. 
I, I, I was I was never good at reggae, so anytime anyone wanted like You look like a reggae guy. Yeah. Man, I just horrible at it and so bad. And uh, Latin really wasn't my thing. Fortunately there weren't that many Latin weddings on Nantucket, so that was helpful. Um, but it's all you know, when when you play music and you immediately see people responding to it, like it's different in the studio when you record and then, you know, maybe you see someone listening to your album. But when you play live and you watch people enjoy what you're playing, that's a very fulfilling moment. But, you know, no one gets wild watching live jazz. People get fucking wild on, at, at a wedding on Nantucket to Sweet Caroline. Yeah. So that's a, that's a pretty cool feeling. And then I played with a band called, um, it was a songwriter named Justin Tranter, who's actually incredibly famous today as a songwriter. We moved together as a band, um, ultimately broke up around 04 or so, I'd say. Um, but that was like glam rock. I mean, it was like the the polar opposite of jazz. And then I played in like this 80s hair band without the hair. Um, so I've, I've done everything. That's a shame. I would have asked for those photos. Yeah, no, no, no. No, <laughs> didn't work. Uh, were there, um, and I guess I ask this question to people a lot, but we can sort of take it in both directions. Were there relationships in music that were deepened because of cigars? Maybe you connected with somebody over that? And vice versa. Are there relationships in the cigar industry that were deepened because you had music in common with somebody? Man, there are definitely people... Like, I'll never forget. I was working at Madison Avenue, and I had just come back from Sony because um, I had dropped something off to Tommy Matola, And I was back in the store, and one of my classmates happened to walk in that I knew from college... And he kind of like broke my balls a little. Like I was, you know, what am I doing working retail? I should be pursuing my craft. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? And he was literally carrying coffees on his way back to Sony. And he said, I work for Sony. And I said, oh, you work for Sony carrying coffees? I just left Sony from Tommy Matola's office. And it was like, you know, right. what do you think now? Um, Christian McBride, who's an incredible bass player, um, is a is a great cigar smoker and pipe smoker. I've become friendly with him. Carl Allen, incredible jazz drummer. Um, I've become very close and friendly with him. And those are relationships that I only would have dreamed of having as a drummer. But it's a it's a vertical climb to get access to the leaders in your industry. But as a as a I wasn't a leader at that time. But as a as someone involved in their hobby, they were coming to me. And so it, it allowed me to, to, to connect with folks on a very different level and folks who, as a musician, I would have loved to interact with and never would have had the opportunity. And cigars have, have created that opportunity. And that's the same, you know, as I've, as I've found other hobbies, whether it's the culinary world, the wine world, you know, these chefs that I've always really respected. Now I get to work very closely with these folks that as a, as a patron of a restaurant, you know, I don't get to go hang out with Emerald in Hawaii for four days because I like his restaurants. Right. But I, have it, I had the opportunity to do that because of my work in the cigar business. Yeah. Um, talk about, we're in part doing this because you're celebrating your 20th year yeah. in the cigar business. Uh, what would you have thought when you got started in cigars if somebody told you, you're going to be in this for this long? Like this is going to be your... I think I, 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 would, I would have said they're crazy, not because I, I didn't love it, but because I, I don't think I understood um, the bandwidth of the industry. I mean, at that point, all I knew was retail. 
So the only thing I could wrap my head around was retail and the businesses that support retail, like sales reps and those types of things. And 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 those are all great careers. Um, but part of being a musician is that sort of ever-changing evolution of of how you work and who you work with. And so I, I'm not sure I... I just didn't know that that type of fulfilling work was available in the industry. It certainly became very apparent as the years went on and on that that it was still evolving and changing and there was still that that newness to the work. Um, and, you know, looking back at it, I mean, I, I can say that my if, if I opened up my, my contacts in my phone today, uh, it's it's not a lot of musicians. It's mostly cigar guys. And funny enough, I'll tell you, when I graduated, my folks said, listen, we want to take you and your friends out for dinner um, for your graduation. And I remember even at that moment, I was like, you don't want to take my friends and I out. My friends are your age and we're going to go to Capitol Grill and you definitely don't want that bill. You know, forget it. I mean, even then it was like I, w- I already felt more connected socially um, to the cigar world than I really did in the in the music world so we just went out for dinner the three of us and that was good enough where'd you go? we went to Capitol Grill oh okay <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you know that you wouldn't have expected to find that T- talk a bit more about what you find most fulfilling 20 years in in the cigar business that's a it's a heavy question because you can only put it in the context of what you've done and so I think everyone has these moments of fulfillment with their work I feel really fortunate that I've I've been able to touch just about every piece of the industry. Um, so having such a robust piece of my career in retail, but then being able to also work on a wholesale level, on a creative level, on a production level, on a on an entrepreneurial level, as far as actually being able to build a, a business. Um, and so for me, that's. Being able to have all those unique experiences is is tremendously fulfilling because it it goes back to being a musician. Why did I want to be a musician? Because not just because it was my favorite thing to do, but because I got to collaborate, I got to um, perform, um, work with different people. I liked being on stage, and those are all things that that I get to do in the in the cigar world. That I, if you had asked me as you know eighteen year old, nineteen year old, twenty year old what did I imagine my career in the cigar business to be should I have one I just didn't know that those things were available so I couldn't imagine how fulfilling it would be yeah so you mentioned how many of your contacts are cigar people um I think one of the anytime that somebody's in your position of uh leading brand development without a factory those relationships with the factory become the closest ones yeah uh, or among the closest ones yeah uh so talk about we'll, we'll start with the with the quesadas Talk a bit about how that connection is made and, and how that relationship became as deep as it is. They really are. I mean, when I when I look at it today and it's very cliche and everyone says, oh, you know, everything, it's like a family. We're a family. And people say, oh, I love them. They feel like family. And I, I believe anyone who says that means it genuinely. But at this point, our relationship is almost 17 years old, 18 years old, something like that. And it's it's a it's a profound level of intimacy with that family. Um so when I started at Davidoff, David Kitchens, when he was in Boston, Raquel Quesada went to school in Boston and worked for David at Gloucester Street. So when I got to Davidoff, uh, the, the Quesadas used to come to New York a lot. David used to go down to DR once a year. So he invited me on one of those trips um, with some other 
local friends from New York and New Jersey, and um, and we just we just hung out. We just spent time with them and went to dinners and saw the factory and enjoyed different cigars. And that was really an amazing experience. And and so we would go back every year. And then I started going back even more and more. Um, and the 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 relationship just just grew organically. It was not. You know, there was there was no preconceived idea of, of someone trying to get something out of it because there was no real direct um, uh, quid pro quo of how that relationship could work. It was an unlikely relationship. I worked for Davidoff. They did not make any products for us. We certainly sold some of their products in our store, but you know, they were they were. It was a relationship that was built truly and solely on relationship and friendship and and caring about each other um and probably the 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 biggest leap in the relationship was when the young ones wanted to develop the 35th anniversary uh and it was the first time Casada would have been on a on a brand and they called me and they they said directly um hey we we need you to come to DR tomorrow and i thought for sure like oh my god manolo's dead something happened what do we do so I get down there. They picked me up. That was even weirder. Like, where is Manolo? What happened to Manolo? And they brought me to the where the factory is today. It was a, a tobacco warehouse at the time. And they had all these bales set up. And they said, we want to pitch our dad on a brand called Quesada. And we want to start with the 35th anniversary. And we need some help. And, like, let's let's just do it together. And so we worked really closely on that project and ultimately we pitched Manolo on the idea unbeknownst to him. He was not happy about the fact that I was there without him knowing about it. Um, but that was an amazing opportunity to build something from scratch with them. And obviously that worked out really well and, and our relationship has only thrived since then. So again, let's talk about, well, before we move on there, just for the person who needs to contextualize this for themselves a little bit, uh, Let's run quickly through what the Quesadas make in the natural portfolio. Yeah, and just to wrap up the, the Quesada theme. So obviously since the – that was about 2009. 2011 I joined Nat Sherman tasked with um, sort of rebuilding the premium cigar business. So obviously there was, there was no other place for me to go where I had such a strong pre-existing relationship and trust level to be able to undertake that. And so the the Casadas really were were behind this from the beginning, supporting the efforts to rebuild. So the, the starting with the um, what was then Timeless Dominican, now Timeless Prestige. Um, so they make that. They make our Metropolitan Connecticut and Maduro since the '90s. That that relationship with the Shermans pre-exists me. So that also made it very easy to move into that world. Um, so Metropolitan Connecticut, Metropolitan Maduro, Timeless Prestige, Timeless Sterling. Um, and the gringo pronunciation of Ipoca and Ipoca Reserva, um, as well as some of our special editions. All right. And so the Placencia family, where does that relationship come from? And, and how, how, how did that deepen, and how is it different from the Quesada relationship, which we talked about a bit? So the Quesadas had an existing relationship with the Placencias um, because they purchased some tobaccos, and then, of course, they, they did um, the Casa Magna brand, still do Casa Magna with Placencias. Um, so I had met them over the years, handfuls of times. Um, but when, again, tasked with this idea of rebuilding, um, we didn't want to just be in one country, one factory. We thought it was important to spread it out a little. And Manolo was kind enough to make an introduction and, and really kind of vouch for me and say, hey, bring this kid in and and um, 
and uh, and let him do what he does. And and so the the, the Placencias were very very gracious. It's obviously a significantly larger scale operation compared to the um, Casada business, which is a much more intimate um, factory environment. Uh, but the the Placencias were were equally gracious and and very willing to um, to sort of go all in on this journey with me and and create products that we really believed were quite unique and then most importantly to Casada's credit and to Placencia's credit maintain those products year after year after year which takes an inordinate amount of time and focus um, that, but but they've both been very very committed to doing that as has Davidoff been in Honduras so yeah let's talk about Davidoff about that relationship and and again it's it, these are three very different companies they're in different places they're different kinds of families from different so what is that? So the Davidoff relationship is interesting. If you look at the, the origin of the relationship, it was a family business, which was Camacho and the Iroa family, uh, made the host series for the Shermans. So when Camacho was sold to Davidoff, um, with it went that relationship. But they, you know, they, they do a tremendous job. It was, it was interesting. It was a very difficult choice to leave Davidoff. Um, as big a company as Davidoff is, it is a family business, and I was fortunate to work closely with the family that owns the company. So it it felt it felt very familial, um, and so I was actually I was very excited to be able to preserve and grow the Davidoff relationship by having one of our products made there as well. Um, they make the host, as I mentioned, that's been around since the '90s, also, um, and you know their 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 commitment to to consistency is, you know, as admirable as as Casadas and um, and and Placencia. We've not done new product there. We've we've just maintained that product, but it's a very important product to our portfolio. So maintenance is not an easy thing to do, and they've been they've really been great partners. Yeah. So talk about you know in in those relationships, and this ends up looking a little different for for everybody who's in your role. Talk about your approach to blending and that product development and how involved do you tend to be? What do you feel like is your, uh, for the person who is maybe sort of diving in for the first time, do you feel like there's something that's your stamp on the Nat Sherman portfolio? Yeah, so, I mean, if I look at my role, on paper, my role is everything that is not a cigarette function for the company. So the, the retail store, um, the wholesale business and its development over the years, and then obviously the the product development and product maintenance, but it's that part that I really spend the, the bulk of my time. Um, Which a lot of people probably don't assume. Yeah, they they probably don't. Um, you know, I I think I, even though I think most people see me in a suit and tie the most, and I uh, I'm I'm in one less and less. I'm certainly not wearing a suit and tie in Santiago or Esteli, um, but that's really where I spend a tremendous amount of time. Um, if I was going to say, like, is there a signature? I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for consistency. I, I don't have because I come from a consumer mindset first, and then a retail mindset, and we don't want our products to change, even even though there is the 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 natural inevitability of of crops changing. For a consumer, they expect the same experience year after year. Um, and so I, I believe that we have the most consistent portfolio of products on the market today. Um, if there were a stamp from like a stylistic standpoint of blending, I, we, don't, we don't do anything that's like 
a full-on ass kicker. Um, there are other people who do it, and they do it great and better than we could ever do it, and it's not authentic to what we do. So stylistically, I think our signature is really about real balance, um, that, that it's flavor that you taste, it's texture that you feel, it's aroma you can smell. Um, that sort of trifecta, strength, flavor, aroma, combustion, are, are all equally important. And um, so when I look at, you know, our Sterling, for example, which for, by all accounts is a relatively mild or mellow cigar, it still has this rich, full body and its creaminess. If I look at the um, Epoca Limited Edition, it's tremendously full and spicy and bold, but there is still this creaminess and balance to it. Um, and maybe that's just personal preference, but um, it's certainly proven successful, so uh, I don't plan on changing it. Yeah. Um, talk about Nat Sherman as a company and how, because it's a, it's a family company and people who follow the magazine uh, may have seen the profile that we did of the Shermans a couple of years ago. Uh, talk about your relationship with them and, and all the trust that, that they've put in you. Um, and then where are the, where are kind of like the, the bumpers in that, in that lane? Um, well, when we started, they, they made a commitment in the beginning that, um, you know, they were very proud of the company, um, very proud of its history, but in particular, they were frustrated um, with their ability to grow and win in the, pre- in the premium cigar business. And it, it, wasn't, it just wasn't a major focus uh, for them, and, and they would certainly admit that. I think they have in, in the story yeah, even. Sure. Um, and so they, they really they gave me a, um, a lot of leeway to, to um, do what I felt was in the best interest of the company and the brand and obviously their family. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful. I think, you know, a lot of times in family businesses, egos tend to trump um, um, how you make real hard decisions. And there, there was no ego. They, what they wanted was a successful business that they could be proud of in all the categories they were in. And, and so I, I'm very proud of, of what we were able to achieve. And they're just, they're amazing people. And they're, they're honest and they're hardworking. They're profoundly generous and and those are really values that that they they brought into the business yeah. not just in the way they conduct themselves but but how they led the business and even though um they sold the business you know those values don't go away and so um even today you know when i think about our our role as a brand and a company sort of carrying on the legacy of the sherman family even though we're no longer owned by the sherman family that responsibility to preserve that legacy is as much if not more important now than it was then yeah so you you don't come from a family in the cigar business but growing up in connecticut were cigars around you started smoking in college but no and and i i I come from a from a um i don't want to say a poor area because it's certainly very rich in culture and and um uh but it's it's not a it's not a wealthy area when you think of Connecticut it is it is not the Martha Stewart corner of Connecticut down by New York it's the opposite corner of Connecticut um, which is actually called the quiet corner um, and so premium cigars I I I can't think of a time I ever saw a premium cigar to be honest with you I was never exposed to it um, if anything you you saw people smoking more mass market um, Garcia Vegas or or backwoods or Swishers. Those you would see smoked from time to time, but even then, 
certainly not with any level of prevalence. So I, I had absolutely no exposure to premium cigars. Um, my dad's a pediatrician. My mom's an art teacher. I grew up asthmatic. You can imagine like the, just how proud they were when I said, I'm working in a cigar shop. They thought I was out of my mind. Um, but you know now they, they love it. They get it. Um, I think they've, they've enjoyed watching how my career has sort of developed. But I think they also really appreciate just how unique the industry is. Um, and they certainly um, like and appreciate all the folks I've met who they've met now and and uh, I think they're 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 always impressed with just you know how close we all work together and and because you know I mean even in in the biggest cigar company it's still such a small industry that that level of intimacy only grows the the smaller you are so when if you look at Nat Sherman despite being a a 90 year old company Nat Sherman International which is the non-cigarette side you know we're probably 30 people all in, including the store, including our wholesale sales force, marketing, everything. So, you know, we spend a pretty inordinate amount of time together and we're all working towards the same thing. It's it's a great feeling. I think my folks have really enjoyed seeing that. How would you, um, and maybe it's a, a big question, but how would you summarize, like, if you had to sort of quickly say like, what you feel like you've accomplished over the last 20 years and what you're hoping to accomplish moving forward in cigars? Because, um, like you said, there's there's always that newness, right? So yeah, I'm I've been I feel really grateful today about being able to make an influence on the industry, and hopefully a positive one. Um, I think education is really important. Um, I like to think that that I'm I'm generally um, unbiased, and and the decisions I make are are not just business decisions to grow our company, but are decisions that ultimately help grow the industry. Um, and so, I mean, over over 20 years, when I think of the the relationships um, that I've developed in, in sort of adjacent categories, like the food world, the wine world, the fashion world, and, and being able to be a sort of an advocate for the industry, um, for me, I, I feel a sense of responsibility in doing that. And I feel like in some way I have contributed positively to to the growth of our industry and the growth of our industry in a very responsible way. We're, we're not targeting folks to to start a habit. We're, we're only trying to find like-minded hobbyists who enjoy the things that we love, who are of legal age to do so. Um, and educate them more and make them smarter consumers. And then hopefully in doing that, they share the same knowledge, um, hopefully share it with their elected officials and, and continue to try and protect what is a very unique industry. Yeah. So we'll end on a, on a couple of more personal questions. Your kids are too young to be smoking cigars. but are they, Definitely. Are they drumming? They're, man, they have such good rhythm and, and they have incredible pitch. I'm so I'm like super excited and very fearful. Will, at there, the same will there be will there be a family band down the road? Oh man, Lord, I hope not. <laughs> but you never know. Never say never. Yeah. What would you call it? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that at yeah. some point later. Um, and is your uh, your wife doesn't smoke cigars? She, you know, we met in a cigar event. Oh yeah. Funny enough, um, I was teaching a cigar tasting class for the American Sommelier Association. 
and her roommate at the time was the admin for that group. So Tiffany's office, she worked for Zagat, Zagat, the restaurant guides. And um, so her roommate invited her to come over, and she said, that sounds terrible. And then she talked to her mom, and her mom said, slap on some lipstick and go. You never know who you're going to meet. And I took her to lunch the next day. So she doesn't come home and smoke a Churchill every night. Sure. But, you know, she she likes it, and, um, you know, she gets it. She's into it. And she'll taste one, especially a, a new blend or a new project. Nice. She'll take a puff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she have a, a favorite? Does she have a favorite in the... Sterling. Sterling, okay. And do you have your own... Pr- I don't know if sometimes people are hesitant to... Yeah, it's like my favorite... You know, I don't have a favorite kid, but, you know, they're they're each one is special for a different reason. So when I think of the, the products, I'm obviously most passionate about the products that I've helped create. So probably Timeless Prestige is like my first baby um, and will always be. But I'm very proud of Sterling. Um, I, I'm very proud of our limited editions. It's hard for me to pick. They're all so unique, and they all have, have such unique characteristics um, that you know I, I do find myself focusing on smoking the products that I've had a hand in. And the only time I really stray outside of the products I've had a hand in are when I'm smoking the products of dear friends right. who they've had a hand in it because then I feel very connected to it. Yeah. So last thing, I know we talked about putting together some kind of a playlist, but if you were to rattle off maybe a, a handful of songs, if you were to add them to the playlist for, for Smoking Cigars. Um, um, there's a song called My Shining Hour, which has been d- recorded a million times, um, but there is a arrangement of it, which it's Joshua Redman and Roy Hargrove, who actually recently passed away. I'm pretty sure Christian McBride is on bass, Um but that version of that tune is just wicked. But really, for me, I like to listen to music that I don't have to think a lot about because I like there to be one focus and then supporting things. Right. So for me, the fact that most of the jazz I listen to is is not vocal jazz, I'm not paying attention to lyrics or a story, it allows me to keep the, the cigar focused. Um or opera, where maybe I don't understand every word, but the music is so moving and, and special that it, it sort of is in keeping with cigars, but allows the cigar to be focused. Um, then again, I suppose, depending on my mood, a little Rage Against the Machine wouldn't help, wouldn't hurt either, so I'm going to work on a playlist. Cool. All right, so with that, I think we're going to lunch. Awesome. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you want to get into? I don't think so, other than if my family listens to this, I'm very grateful for their support and understanding. There's obviously a lot of nights where I'm not home with them, and um, I think technology helps a touch with being able to FaceTime and do other things, and being able to get in and out of cities faster um, with more flights is obviously helpful, but there are a lot of nights I don't make it home, and um, you know my family's been nothing but supportive, so I love them dearly. Just a matter of time before you're on tour all the time together, sir. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get a tour bus. I'll bring him with me. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to the Cigar Snob Podcast. You can find us just about anywhere you listen to podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all that. Also, find us on social media at CigarSnobMag.com. Send any feedback that you might have to feedback at CigarSnobMag.com. And finally, you can subscribe to Cigar Snob Magazine at cigarsnobmag.com slash shop. It's 18 bucks for the year. Pretty sweet deal, if you ask me. So, uh, all right, with that, thank you very much. Enjoy your cigar or your coffee or your drink or your traffic or whatever it is that you're pairing this podcast with, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers.